Welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. That was Black Sheep and stick around with the unmistakable vocal sound of the great Lou Graham, who I've got here today on the Strange Brew podcast. We'll be covering his early years, all his success in Foreigner, continued releases and more success 
in his solo years and bringing us right up to date. So let's hear my chat with Lou. Thank you so much for for doing this, Lou. I was really interested to dig into your website recently and and saw that you've been doing solo shows recently and you've got more coming up. How have those shows been going? Good. They've been received really well. Uh, While I've been sharing the night with Asia for the past few years, which has been a lot of fun, it feels good to be back in the saddle with my own band playing my own songs. And uh, there's nothing like that, and I, and I think I think the fans approve. Yeah, and and the good thing about your shows at the minute is that it gives people the chance to not only listen to the tracks that uh, you did with Foreigner, but you've got a, a great solo catalog to dip into, so you get the full range. Yes, yeah, it's a lot of fun to intersperse those songs, and, and maybe a song by Shadow King too, you know. That's great. And I've heard that you've got some uh, great people in your band at the minute that you're playing with. Yeah. Uh, the lineup is uh, on bass, Tony Franklin, played with The Firm. Yeah. On keys is Jeff Jacobs. He played with Warner. Uh, sax is Scott Gilman. Scott played with Warner and, and with my solo band. On drums is my brother, Ben Graham. Guitar is from uh, Eddie Money's band, uh, Benito DiBartoli. We have uh, Carolyn Puffer. Uh, singing background vocals with us. She was doing shows with Asia also. Mm. So we, we've we got the sound rounded out and uh, ready to go in any direction we want. I saw that you were down for the, the rock cruise early next year as well. Have yeah. you done one of those before? Yes, I, I, I have done a few of them before. And they can be lots of fun depending on if the equipment's good and things go as planned. They can be a mess too, if not, you know, but I've been fortunate enough to perform on cruises where the equipment is top-notch and the the people running the equipment are top-notch. So I've enjoyed it. You mentioned uh, your brothers in the band playing drums, but you originally set out as a drummer yourself, didn't you? Uh, I was a drummer myself, yes. Um, I began playing drums when I was seven years old, and I got my first set of drums, my first kit, when I was about 10. I had them set up in my basement, in my parents' basement, and I would practice And then I'd run out to play with my friends down the street. And when I came back to play my drums again, all the drums were up here and I couldn't even reach the cymbals. And I'm going, what's going on here? So when I I fixed everything the way I wanted it, when I went out to practice again, when I went out to, to, to play with my friends, I ran around the side of the house and looked in the basement window. And who do you think is coming down the stairs to practice my drums? Ben. Ah. So he set them up the way he needed to. He was, he was uh, about 5'11 when he was uh, 14 years old. So he was all arms and legs. And when he was done, he'd just go up the stairs and, and leave them like that. So that, that's why when I sat down at him, I couldn't reach the symbols, you know? Reading back your excellent autobiography, Jukebox Hero, you come from such a musical family as well. Yes, my dad played lead trumpet. Uh, he played trumpet in the in the high school band. After after he graduated from high school, he took some of his friends who also played for his high school band and formed uh, a big band, big band jazz, you know, in the 40s. And it just so happened that my mom was from a different school in the Rochester area, and she came and auditioned to be the vocalist. She ended up being the vocalist, and my mom and dad fell in love. Oh. And what a time to be a teenager and, and getting into music as well in that sort of late 50s and, and 60s period. 
understand that uh, many of the British groups were favourites of yours. Yes, uh, particularly the, the, the Beatles. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of them were the Stones, the Animals, the Kinks. But uh, I remember seeing the, the Beatles two or three times on Ed, the Ed Sullivan show. And honestly, it changed my life. You know, I wanted to be a, a history teacher, high school history teacher up to that point. But after I saw those performances, I knew that 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 music was going to be what my life was about. I just knew it. And when did you go center stage and, and move away from the drums? Uh, it was probably around 1968 or 1969 when I, I was still playing drums and I, I had my band Black Sheep. And uh, we were just starting to write songs. I was finding out that it was difficult to put across a new song to an audience when you're buried behind a set of drums, you know? Mm. So at first we at first we looked for vocalists because I like playing drums, you know? But we couldn't find a vocalist. So I came up to the front and we looked for a drummer. And drummers are all over the place, you know? <laughs> That kind of changed things around, but but I adapted. And I was a little bit uncomfortable up front at first, but uh, you know, after a while, you 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 get your legs under you and uh, and you just rock. It's been been good going ever since. I listened to the uh, the Black Sheep single "Stick Around" uh, recently, and it I think it holds up well. And you can kind of feel a similar sort of sound to Bad Company and Paul Rogers. Do you think that's right? Yes, uh, I know that that Black Sheep. We were huge, huge fans of Free, yeah. Paul Rogers' first successful band. You know, so there's little little bits of stylized things that you might hear in there. You know, in that early period of Black Sheep, you actually came across John Lennon in the studio, didn't you? Yes, we we were in uh, New York City at the record plant recording our second album, and John was right next door. He was recording with Phil Spector. So, so there was a, a, a little room where you could get away from everything. There's a pool table and stuff like that. And, and I went in there because I was getting a little frazzled. And uh, John was in there. And we shot, we shot a game of pool together. And he, he asked what I was doing there. I told him I was in with my band. And, and, and I, I let him know that I had had my ear against the door. And I really liked what he was doing. To and uh, so we, we we talked for about ten or fifteen minutes and shot a game of pool and and that was it. But you know, I mean, dear me, what else would you like? <laughs> Black Sheep in that early period were signed to Chrysalis Records, which was a British label, but they didn't really have a foot in the US, so that wasn't ideal, was it? They were on the cusp of of opening their first two headquarters in in LA and New York, and and that that sold us on them. But after our first single was released, we found out that they decided to hold back on doing that. And so they didn't have any promotion for the single in the States. And they promised us after the single that they would follow up with an album, but that didn't happen either. So we we uh, we asked for our release and we got picked up by Capitol. Yeah, because you continue to release material albums and, and singles and, and one of the, the single highlights is uh, Chain On Me. Do you think that you you built up your confidence uh, at the front and, and on vocals in that period? Oh, absolutely, yeah. My range started getting higher and, and my voice started getting uh, uh, more character in it and I just felt more comfortable uh, up front behind the mic. I didn't even think about the drums anymore, you know. 
There was an incredible moment where you had the opportunity to join up or audition with uh, Mick Jones for his then sort of new project. And it was actually the band members of Black Sheep that gave you the lift that actually spurred you on. Yeah, uh, we, because we were set, Black Sheep was set to to be the the special guest on the whole KISS tour. Oh. We played uh, in Boston with them. And as an opening act, we got a we got a stand we got an encore we got a standing ovation, and Kiss's tour manager says, "Yeah, go answer your ovation, play another song 
and we did, and that was awesome. But but it was it was Christmas Eve, I think, 1975. So the guys in the band were in one car, and the crew was in the truck with the equipment. The guys in the band, after Kiss closed the show, we drove back to Rochester. It was a I think a six hour drive, so we could be with our families on Christmas Day. Well, the truck was behind us, and the roads were icy. The truck slid off the road and tipped over. Oh. And we got a call, I got a call about 3.30 in the morning that woke me up from uh, one of our crew guys saying, you got to come and get us. Uh, we're stuck here. And the, 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 the truck is tipped over. We don't know what the condition of the equipment is. Come and get us. So the bass player and I jumped in a car and drove all the way back to Albany. That's where they had the accident. Cool. And picked up, picked up the, uh, the crew guys. And by, by then a big uh, tow truck picked up the truck and took it to a gas station off the road. And when we went to, to take a look at it, the, the box was all bent, couldn't even open the back door. And when we finally pried the door open it, the day after Christmas, the amps were crushed. The, the, the drums were out of round. Mm. The legs on the Hammond were knocked off. We, we needed about 80% of our equipment replaced. And we had we had insurance, but the insurance finally gave us the check in April. So in the meantime, we lost our spot with Kiss. We were dropped from Capital, yeah. and we were we were nowhere. And just about that time, I got a call from Mick Jones saying that he heard my voice on the Black Sheep album and asked me if I wanted to come and audition for a brand new band that he's putting together. And I thanked him very much for the the offer, but I told him I was loyal to the band I was in, yeah. and I believed we had a future if we could get back on our feet again. And he said, he said, I understand. He says, I'm going to call you again in about a month. In the meantime, I told the guys in Black Sheep about what happened, and they said, you're crazy. Go audition, you know. They said, we're, we're, we're pretty much done here. You know, go see what you can do for yourself. So when Mick called back again, I told him I'd be willing to come down and audition. And they got me a plane ticket. I went down there. I had a satchel with, with a change of socks and underwear and a T-shirt. And I stayed there for almost two weeks writing songs with Mick and rehearsing. And, you know, it was an exciting time, a very exciting time. Things seem to click so naturally right off the bat. One of those early songs is Feels Like the First Time. That song had a hand in uh, getting the, the new group signed, didn't it? Yeah. When I auditioned for the band, that song was already written. Right. But I did sing it, and it helped to get us the, the deal.
But even in that scenario where Mick had the song and it was relatively fully formed, you still had a hand in shaping certain phrases, and so it had come out authentically. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You had, you had you've got to, you can write to somebody, you've got to put it across too, you know. Yeah. But our our, our writing uh, team started off with a bang. We would uh, rehearse. Mick and I would rehearse around the piano in his apartment. And we, we started working on uh, Cold as Ice right away. And a couple other songs, Long, Long Way From Home. You know, that's about a song about me leaving Rochester, coming to New York. Once we, we uh, got used to each other's style and stuff, we, we were knocking them out pretty good. And by the time Atlantic Records came down to hear us, we must have played, played them about six or seven songs. Your lyrics in that period, and I guess this is where Black Sheep and your time in Black Sheep really sort of helped help to nurture you. In those songs that you've just mentioned, Long, Long Way From Home, got that sort of resonance with your story and, and the New York area, and maybe that's one of the things that resonated with people that were listening? Could be, yeah. Uh, one of the lines is, I left a small town for the apple in decay, because at the time I came down there to, to audition, there was a garbage strike. And the garbage hadn't been picked up in New York for three weeks. And the stench was unbelievable. So uh, that's why I phrased it, the apple, the big apple, in decay. It was fun stuff. You just pick up what's going on around you and put it into the song. Yeah, and all sorts of topics. It, it wasn't just love that you focused on. Uh, no, no. A long, long way from home being the example. But 
also it seems that you brought in elements of relationships but in a, a real way on, on tracks like Cold as Ice that sort of flips it on itself. Yes, it does. Yeah, you're right. Good observation. Yes. I recall seeing something by Ian McDonald and talked about that period in terms of recording Cold as Ice that actually the weather outside was blustery and stormy as well, which seemed quite fitting. Is, is that something you remember? Yes, we we I'd finished the lead vocals, the, the the music was complete, and we were working on the, the harmonies. Cold, 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 as ice. And so there were three or four of us around the mic trying to, to get that rhythm, you know, and, and uh, we almost had it. We, we kept messing up the end. We were so frustrated, we put our coats on and we went out into the freezing rain and walked around the block, you know, to, to more or less like <laughs> to slap us into feeling a little more uh, uh, awake. That's what it was. We needed to wake up a little bit. And when we came back in, we nailed the vocal and it was awesome.
And going out live with the group, it seems that Foreigner, not only with that great first album, but you actually took the songs to the fans and built up a relationship and wider audience actually playing live. Yes, we, we um, certainly, in, we, we didn't intend to be a, a, a just a recording band. We, we wanted to have a live sound and a live presence that fans would embrace. And we worked real hard on our live show and made sure that the sound did the songs justice. Yeah. Right from the get-go, we, we were very um, hopeful and successful in, in relating to the audience and they relating to our songs. It was great to build that with the fans. And we carried that through for years. And you have a great story about the back end of touring the first album where the crowd wanted an encore. You played Hot Blooded and it wasn't even finished, but it went down a storm. Yes, we played all, all the songs from, uh, from our first album and we played a couple cover songs. I think we did uh, a Betty Wright call, song called Let Me Be Your Love Maker. Let me be your soul shaker, you know, that, and that that was a lot of fun to play. We did, did a couple old blues songs and we still needed one more song. So, so we went off stage. We, we, we got an encore. We went off stage and we were huddled like a football team. What do you want to play? You know, and we said, well, let's do hot blooded. And I'm going, we don't have a last verse. He says, sing the second verse twice then. You know, <laughs> Mick said, says, sing the second verse two times then. They'll never know, you know. So we did, and, and the song got an incredible response. I mean, it was unbelievable. And we knew right away that that was going to be our first single. Now it's 
Blue Morning, Blue Day was another highlight from that period. And yes. that's a song that has a bit of a resonance as well in that it's about a young musicians and the struggles there. Yes. Again, uh, uh, a man and a woman relationship, but at the backdrop of, of playing rock and roll. I love that song. I love the instrumentation on it. And the whole attitude of the song is is very intense. It seems that you were able to bounce off the melodies and structures of those songs as well. There was all sorts of sounds and ideas floating around at the time by all members of the group. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. There was time for that. And I don't think that anybody was uh, jaded in, in their ideas or their playing. You know, we, we didn't have to be foreigner because we didn't know what foreigner was exactly. Mm. So the ideas that were floating around for me and McDonald particularly were were just gems that uh, were like diamonds in the rough in a song, you know, and, and it just set the band apart. And you carried a notebook around you, so you were always looking, an idea came to you for lyrics or whatever, you jot that down? Oh, yes. I've got about 25 of them at my house from that go back to the first Foreigner album.
double vision is a great case in point in that you were watching an ice hockey game there, weren't you? Yes. I was fortunate enough to have season tickets to the New York Rangers. So I was in Madison Square Garden watching the Rangers when one of the opposing players came by and hit John Davidson, the Rangers goalie, with his hockey stick. And he spun around and fell on the ice. And and the Rangers teammates had to come around and pick him up and stuff. And they actually had to help him off the ice. And he he had to go in the the club room and get worked on by, by the trainers and the doctors there because he was experiencing double vision. Very apt. Do you think by the time of the third Foreigner album that you were you were touring too much and that took its toll in, in the studio? I do think that. The other thing I think was that we had good ideas, but we didn't take them we, we didn't take them far enough along in preparation before we recorded. Right. We went into the studio with, with half-baked songs and tried to finish them as we were recording. In hindsight, I think that was that was a big mistake. The track head games at the time had some controversy, but do you think that what was missed was an element of humor as well that sometimes you'd have with the songs? Yeah, possibly, possibly. But but uh, I, you know, I, I think head games was a good song. I don't think head games was the problem. The problem was dirty white boy, right? Which was the first single, and, and that that stirred up a lot of controversy. There were radio stations, big radio stations in Boston and Chicago and uh, Cincinnati and St. Louis and around the country that that wouldn't play the song. Right. And then there were there were bonfires where people were burning the new album because the, they saw the cover as being controversial. You know, that was a young girl who was in a boy's bathroom erasing her her name and phone number off the off the wall that so, that somebody had written on there. And from the the look of the album, it looks like while she was doing that, somebody came in and caught her. Ah. She was like, and some somehow that that uh, just rubs rubbed some people wrong. They they, you know, it, it was it was fairly innocent. It, it it wasn't suggestive or or it didn't lead to anything other than what it was. Just a, a young girl who heard that her name and number were on the boys' bathroom, snuck in there and was wiping wiping it off, you know? Mm. And that's all it was. Before you knew it, the, the evangelists and all this stuff, that, and we were banned in Boston and St. Louis and Chicago. Wow. It did hurt the reputation of the band and, and set us back a little bit. That's why we prepared for Foreigner 4 like nobody's business. We had to come back or we were going to be has-beens.
So you changed the, or Mick did, you changed the lineup at the time, which must have been a gamble. Mick and I did. We talked about it for hours and hours. Right. And we both agreed that the lineup change would be best for all, all concerned. You know, the other thing we, we thought that some of the guys had, had uh, become set in their ways and a little bit complacent. And, and as we were writing new songs for four and four, we were hearing the same same playing that we had heard on the last two albums on the parts for four and four. We were like, no, you've done that already. Play something else, you know, and they just couldn't come up with anything. So we, we knew that we had to make a change. Listening to Four and Four, it seems an album that fits the new decade that it was in, the, the 1980s. And you also got a, a new producer, which uh, must have uh, shook things up as well, Mutt Lang. Oh, yes. Yep. We, we were well aware of his reputation. Heard about his, from, from people he had produced about his style of working. Mick and I had done a lot of talking about what we wanted to achieve with this album, what we had to achieve. And, and uh, how we wanted to go about it. And we, we knew that, that Mutt was very strong and opinionated. And while we were, we were going to take the best he had to offer, we weren't going to back down on what we wanted to achieve and how we wanted to go about it. The single release of Urgent seemed to sort of stress that sound. And it's got some simps in there, but the role of Thomas Dolby must have yes. really added to that. Oh, boy. What a great creative player he is, and a, and a nice man too. You know, he came in and and uh, heard, heard the song maybe two or three times, and he he couldn't wait to play. And his ideas just, I mean, it was a great song, but but it put it to another level. The sax on on that track as well is Junior Walker as well, and that works. Junior Walker, well, I remember uh, when it, the song was basically done when it got when it got to that part. Mick tried to play some guitar leads and they were good, but we, we all realized that we need something completely different to set it apart. And uh, I was looking through the Village Voice, the music and arts magazine in, in New York City yeah. and found that Junior Walker was playing a club about three blocks down the street. We stopped what we were doing. We all put our coats on and went down the street and heard about four or five of Junior's songs. It was the last five songs of his set. And he, he was rocking. When the set was done, we came up and introduced ourselves and told him that we were big fans and uh, asked him if he would consider coming to the studio just a couple blocks down and, and playing something for one of our songs, you know. And, and he had never heard a foreigner. <laughs> never heard of us. But his son played drums for him. Junior's son played drums for him, and he had heard of Foreigner. So he went with Junior to the studio, and, and we we played Urgent for him, and he took his sax and went into the, to the booth. You know, Junior really used to rock hard early on in his career, but, but the last few albums, he played Sweet Soul, and he wasn't honking anymore. He was kind of just playing uh, safe, sweet stuff, you know? And he, tr he started playing that on Urgent, and we, we stopped him. No, Junior, we don't want that. We want things like Shotgun. You know, we named a couple other songs he did. He goes, oh, he says, I know what you mean. I got some of that, he says. And uh, the next take, next two or three takes were killer. And we, we recorded all three or, three or four takes, and we took the best pieces and pieced it into a, an unbelievable solo. It really made that song 
the centerpiece of the album, you know? Mm. And uh, maybe a year later, we played the LA Forum. And when we were about to start Urgent, Junior came up on stage with his sax, and he had a fluorescent suit on with the big lapels and crazy, crazy shoes. And he played Urgent Live, and it brought the house down. It was unbelievable. It was one of my favorite moments. You know, we 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 remained in touch with him over the years until he passed. Yeah, it it was it was a very special time.
there's a, the song from that period that was big then, but I mean, I think of the decades has got bigger and bigger and resonates more and more. And that's Jukebox Hero. Yes. A really important track. And again, the lyrics resonate with people, the story of the underdog and, and waiting by the, yeah. the side of the stage and all that kind of thing. Yep. I actually began writing that song in my basement. I had a two-track tape recorder, a TAC tape recorder, and my set of drums. And I was playing the drums and singing the melody. No music, just my voice and the drums. And that's that's how that song started. And after, I, I think I did... I did the intro, one verse and a chorus, and then stopped, and then put a, a keyboard over the top of it, just so I have some chords. Mm. And with that, I brought it brought it in and played it for Mick. And at first, he had a funny look on his face, like he didn't understand what I was playing for him, you know? Mm. And then at a certain time, I started doing air guitar and singing out the chords that the guitar would play, and it was like a light went on in his head. And he was like, I see now. He says, let's get to work on this. You know what? He was masterful in that song. Uh, the production, his playing, it stands today as my favorite corner song. A real sort of false live as well. It must be quite a, a difficult track to sing in a way that the song just builds and builds and builds and the crowd must go, well, they do, they go crazy. Oh, Yeah. And we would encourage them to join us on the juke box hero part, you know? Yeah. And they'd be screaming it. And it was, it was so much fun to, to get them involved. It was a very powerful song live. And uh, we usually close the show with it.
thing for a girl like you. Yes. Hits kept coming, and that was a, a chance to sh- showcase your voice as well in a, a different way. In, in a different way, yes. You know, I, I'm not a big ballad guy, but that song was not a traditional ballad. It was it was something a little different than that. And again, Thomas Dolby put a slightly not ethereal, but almost like Twilight Zone yeah. part to it. You know. It, it made your hair stand up on your arms, you know, when you heard it. I really enjoyed singing the song, and I thought the song was very strong. What's this story about you doing the vocals for that track in the studio, and there was a young woman oh, yeah. that you could see in your eye line? Well, I, I began singing the song, and uh, I wasn't even one line into the first verse, and I saw the, the studio door open from the hallway, and this very attractive woman come in. She, she was she was in a dress and and everything, and not crazy style. She was very very conservative, really, but she was beautiful. And she came down, and there was a row of seats in front of in front of the the console. She came down, and she sat right there, and she just she just looked at me with a little a little slight smile on her face, and I don't know if. Mick or somebody put her up to that maybe to get me to emote a little more, but boy, did I ever. Mm. And uh, I was hitting the notes and all, all these little nuances, you know, in the song that made the vocal really special. And after I hit that real high note at the end, she slowly got up and she gave me a little smile and she walked out the door. And when the song ended, I said, I said, who was that? And they said, who was what? I says, come on. I says, who was it? They says, I don't know what you're talking about. And I know that they they arranged that, but I never found out what or why they did it. You know, they played like they didn't know what I was talking about, but it worked. And Waiting for a Girl Like You is uh, has featured in uh, Stranger Things TV series previously. and I, I didn't hear that, but I heard about it. Yeah, Was it on one episode or something? Yes, and, and obviously we've got the success of Kate Bush at the minute. And do you think that that's a chance to, to give where it is placed in TV or elsewhere a, a chance to open up your music to a new audience when it's done? Yes, absolutely. I would think there's opportunities for quite a few more songs to be used in, diff- in different uh, TV episodes or, or, or anything that, that made for TV movies or such. You know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I hear more and different songs.
do you think I want to know what love is it was it a turning point because great track it is foreigner were known as being a sort of a hard rock band and it was clearly a, a huge song but it overshadows or was that a risk that you felt at the time well I did see the risk because it came so quickly on the heels of waiting for a girl right we had a very strong presence and reputation in the rock world and I thought that two great ballads almost coming back to back we're going to do damage to that and it did you know that the critics were saying that that foreigner has gone soft there were segments of of audiences we played for that that even though the song people were were loving the song there there were segments of the audience that didn't want to hear that many ballads in a set usually you play one ballad in a rock set and that's it mm. we had two huge ballads and playing them both was not real smart. I think, you know, the rockers in the audience didn't have the patience to hear two ballads and they let themselves be heard. And every time that happened, I would think to myself, you know, we ought to do one ballad and then the next night we play, do the other ballad, Mm. you know, now some people aren't going to be happy because they're going to, they're not going to get both songs but I'd rather have somebody not be happy and wanting more than a bunch of of slugs shouting me down while I'm singing, you know, Mm. that's not fun. That seemed to be a sort of turning point in that you had seems to have less influence in the band. And and it seemed before then it was a real collaborative effort. Whereas after that, it was closely tied with Mick. Yes. Well, the the other thing was that on the song, I want to know what love is. It took a long time to write the idea for it came quickly. Right. But we realized it was such a potentially important song. We wanted it to be awesome in every way. And we hit we hit roadblocks that, that we just couldn't creatively we hit we we couldn't overcome them. You know, we couldn't make the song transition and, and end up being huge, you know. We had a tough time reaching that point. I lived in Westchester County above New York City. And Mick had a house in a different part of Westchester County. So I would come over to his house and we would work on that song sometimes four or five nights a week for about five or six hours a night. And we would be creatively just fried. Mm. And sometimes we'd make a little headway. And and sometimes after five hours, we would go home wondering if the song would ever be finished to its potential. I gave everything I had. And when we finally did record the song and Mick was in is it was in one studio working with the choir. I was in the next studio singing the lead vocals. Usually he's right with me singing with the lead vocals, putting his two cents in and making suggestions and stuff. I was totally on my own this time and he was working with the choir. So the first time I'm on my own is a song that's important as this. Mm. Mind you, I nailed that vocal. I, I'm so proud of the, the vocal. Yeah. And it was just me and an engineer. And when we were finally done, I handed it to him. And he, he, he thought it was great, but he had no part in that, which was very strange. At any rate, usually when we finish songs, we sit down and decide who contributed what, what the split should be. So for I Want to Know What Love Is... What we would do is write down on a little piece of paper what we thought the split would be, and then we'd swap pieces of paper. And I had I had it 60% Mick, 40% me. Mm. 
the piece of paper he gave me said 90% Mick, 10% me. And I thought I was so hurt by that. I thought to myself, what are you thinking? I put everything into that song. Even if you didn't use everything I put into it, I did, I did the work. I did the sweat, you know, and the emotional mm. drain. So he had 90-10 for me. So I told him that, that that was not an acceptable percentage for the amount of time we, we spent on the time. Not the amount of time you spent on it, the time we spent on it. Mm. And so instead of 60%, 40%, I wrote down 70% Mick, 30% me. And you know what he wrote down? 95% Mick, 5% me. Uh. So I just walked away and he took all of it. He took all of it. Yeah. So the song was number one around the world. It was number one by one, the, one of the Judds. It was number one by Sheena Easton in Australia. It was number one by a number of artists. Every three or four years, the song would come out again by somebody else and go to number one. The notoriety and the financial implications of that song were monumental. I didn't share in any of them. My name is not on it. I got no royalties from it, no publishing from it, no notoriety from it. When the conversation ultimately went to, to our, our big number one song, he did all the talking about it, and I wasn't even mentioned, okay? Because Mick likes to talk about Mick, and that's, that's the way that went down, and that destroyed our relationship. That's why on the next album, I had little to nothing to do with that album. And the next album, even less. I would come in. I would sing my parts. And an hour later, I'd go home. I didn't stick around to see what else was being done, you know, to contribute ideas or anything, mm. because I could see my ideas were not valued. Midnight Blue, that was rejected by Mick, which seems incredible. I mean, that should have been a, yep. I mean, it was a huge single, but you'd think if Mick was hearing Midnight Blue, would be thinking, well, this is a big hit. He heard it. And, and he, he didn't hear it. He, he, he says, he said, after hearing it, he, the, the rough of it, you know, it was a rough. He said, yeah, that's pretty nice. But he, he, he wasn't in any way, shape or form excited about it, uh, that it could possibly, uh, that I was offering it to him to be a foreigner song. Hmm. And in a way, in a way, I was glad that he rejected it yeah. because it went to number five when I recorded it myself. And it was the number one played single in the U.S. for that year. Over Can't Find What I'm Looking For by U2, over some really huge, awesome songs, Midnight Blue was number one. And I never heard him mention it again. He never mentioned that song again. You know, ne never congratulated me on its success. Never said, well, maybe I should have thought twice about it. Nothing. He, he, he completely wrote it out of his life. That's the way he is. How was the Midnight Blue track written? Because the, the piano was involved this time. Is that right? Yeah, uh, uh, I heard the chords in my head and I couldn't play them on the guitar. I don't play guitar. I can play some chords yeah. if I need to, but but I heard the chords as a guitar part, but to, to be able to make a demo, I found the chords on the piano. And, and my friend Bruce Turgan, who's been co-writing with me for 35 years. 
then came in, heard the piano chords, and played it on guitar, and it was brilliant. We were talking about the role of TV earlier, but there's the Lost Boys film, which is a classic 80s film, but yes. the main track in that, Lost in the Shadows, is yours. How did that come about? While we were recording uh, my first solo album, uh, Joel Schumacher, the producer or the director of Lost Boys, 
a very famous uh, director who I had met before actually came and, and asked me if I would write the title song for, for the movie. Came out of nowhere. I didn't know him that well. I had met him. He, he knew my music. I think he sent a text or something to me at, telling me about the movie and sending me some clips of it hmm. and asked me if I, if I would consider writing the, the, the main song for it. I already had some music written that I, I couldn't find words for and didn't have a home for yet. And that music with a different beat to it and a different attitude ended up becoming Lost in the Shadows, which I think was was an awesome song. Yeah. And when they did the video for it, he wanted me to be a part of that too. Brilliant. It was really fun.
and your solo hits kept coming just between you and me was a, another great track. That was with Holly Knight, wasn't it? Holly Knight and I wrote that song together, yes. And that was a, that was a great experience. She's a wonderful person and, and a, such a gifted writer and plays great guitar. That song uh, ended up to be a top 10 song. That album was produced by Peter Wolf, not the Jay Giles Peter Wolf, right. the, the keyboard Peter Wolf who played with um, Starship, I think. That turned out to be a really good album. Uh, uh, he really, he's a good, very good producer, but he likes to produce. And I think some of the tracks were overproduced. Hmm. So uh, that part was a little disappointing to me, but but by and large, it was a, a very strong album. Covering Foreigner and your solo career, I mean, you did get positive critics, but sometimes there were negative critics. But in terms of your fans, that bond and that connection and link has always been there. Yes, it has. It sure has. Uh, I value my fans like they were family.
Shadow Play, it seems a, a very underrated part of your back catalogue that deserves to be more widely heard. I think so, yeah. I think if people heard it, they, they would, uh, you know, when when I mentioned, uh, when I mentioned that the albums that I've done, when I mentioned that, people have a funny look on their face and they go, what is that? Yeah. That was in 1991. And it was uh, Bruce Turgan, uh, Vivian Campbell, Kevin Valentine on drums. And I don't think we had a keyboard player. Uh, we did on the road, but, and, and uh, we recorded a, a hard rock album for Atlantic Records and the songs were great. Keith Olsen produced it. Oh, wow. Yep. It's a, it's a brilliant album and I'm extremely proud of it. And Atlantic Records never promoted it and they let it die. We, we played one live show. That band played one live show and the album just disappeared. And Atlantic didn't promote it. And it was a great, great album. What are your favorite tracks from that uh, Shadow King album? Um, Once Upon a Time is almost like Motown, but with a heavy edge. You Don't Even Know I'm Alive. That's a killer rock ballad. There's a song called Boy, which is really balls to the wall. Bruce and I did most of the writing with Vivian. And the songs are, are exemplary. And the performances are, I think, legendary. Vivian was so good on that album. He did things on that album that that you would never hear on Def Leppard or or any of the bands he did before. He really had a a free hand to do all the little things that he wanted to try. And it made the album great.
Do you have plans to record any new music? Right now I have six new songs and I'm going to record another three songs. I'm working on a deal, record deal, and it's possible that, that before the end of the year, those songs could be out. That'll be my first new album in, is it 30 years? Amazing. 30 years. And then just finally, I'm very conscious of um, Ian McDonald sadly passing away early this year. And yes, really sad. He's an artist that doesn't always get his due, really. No, he, he doesn't. He doesn't. He was a multi-instrumentalist and he played everything good. He, 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 he always used to, when he played guitar, he'd knock his guitar out of tune because he'd play hard, you know. But I mean, as far as the keyboard and the woodwinds, I remember when I first heard him play the flute on Star Rider, my hair stood on end. It, it was just beautiful. Every time he played that beginning of that song, the audience would go, oh, it was awesome. And he had a good, he had a good lead vocal voice that, that served us well at, in the background department. Always very cool on the road and, and uh, you know, just, a, just an all around good guy. Good guy to hang with. And uh, I was really sad to hear that he passed, but but uh, I knew that he was not in good health. Love has taken its toll from those early years. Is a good representation and, and shows how you both combined together in a, a special way at times. Uh, I hear the Beatles influence in there too. Yeah, He was a huge Beatles fan. 
and I am a huge Beatles fan. And that song has a little something in it that, that I could hear. You know, it's almost like it's from the White Album. And maybe that's a good way to close because it links back to the, the early discussions about your influences. Um, Lou, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. And it's great to cover your whole career and solo work and even better to, to know the very, very exciting news of uh, new material and also importantly that you're continuing to play live. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. 
you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.